Well, uh, believe it or not, uh, I used to be a bit of a troublemaker. Um, I would joke around in class. I would run through lunchtime soccer games and just kick the ball away. I would find bits of bark and just throw them at peaceful circles of girls chatting over morning tea. I would uh, generally just find ways to wind people up. But that was all last week and I'm a new man now. <laughs> no, that was, that was back in school. I was a troublemaker. In saying that, I've also kind of been quite a rule follower, which doesn't sound like it's compatible, but I assure you it is. I've always kind of been like a person of justice. My heart leans towards things that are fair, things that are just, and things that are right. But it doesn't matter how much a kid wants to do the right thing. We all know that there are moments when as kids, we'll do absolutely everything we can to get out of trouble. Uh, I've told the story before, so I'll give a brief summary of it. I remember this one time um, after this guy, Greg, punched this guy Kyle, me and my friend Sam were the justice warriors and we went and punched Greg just to level it out. We ran away, he chased us, he almost hit a teacher, it was quite an ordeal and we ended up in the principal's office. Now on our way to the principal's office, it got me thinking, we need a plan. And so we conjured up and we conspired a plan so that we were on the same page so that we could justify our actions and get out of trouble. Well, There we were in the principal's office sitting in front of the principal and he asked us what happened. And as I'm about to open my mouth to begin taking us through the agreed plan to get us out of trouble, Sam just blurts out, we punched Greg in the face. I'm like, Thank you, my friend. And that was the start of two weeks straight of lunchtime detentions for us. Now, I think about that occasion often. And the reason I think about it often is because pretty much every other kid I've ever known in my life would have gone along with the plan, would have stuck to the plan in order to get out of trouble. But Sam had no interest in defending himself. He didn't deny anything. He just owned it and took the punishment. And as annoyed as I was at Sam in that moment for helping us break the school record uh, of most detentions given in one go, as I reflect back on it, I realized justice was served. Like we deserve to be punished because we in fact did punch Greg. And so we were punished. People deserve to be held to account for their actions. And justice is at the heart of God. Isaiah 61 verse 8 says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully reward my people for their suffering and make an everlasting covenant with them. Deuteronomy 16 20 says, Let true justice prevail so you may live and occupy the land the Lord your God is giving you. Proverbs 21 15 says, Justice is a joy to the godly, but it terrifies evildoers. We have all been raised, conditioned, and trained to believe that a good world is one that is fair. Right, like it's unfairness that causes us to step in and help people in need. It's unfairness that, that causes us to stand up and speak out against things. It's unfairness that causes us to give to charity and other worthy causes like this Ukraine conflict. The other day I was chatting to a friend that's got a couple of kids from sort of like three to 10. And she was saying how the kids were bickering about how everything was unfair among the siblings. Has anyone with kids ever experienced that? Classic. Her response, she said to her kids was, oh, well, life's not fair. Now, I've heard that a thousand times. I've had that said to me. I will say that to Boston when the time is right. But as I was chatting to her about this last week, it just kind of stuck with me a little more this time. I was thinking about justice at the time. And so when she said that, I was like, that's interesting. Life isn't fair. Our default when we think of an unfair world is to think that we are the ones that have been hard done by. 
that we are the victims, that we deserve better, that justice has been skewed in somebody else's favor. Well, in John chapter eight, we see this amazing story of Jesus. Some religious leaders, they bring an adulterous woman. She's been caught in the act of adultery. They bring her to Jesus and they say, Jesus, the law of Moses says that she should be stoned to death. But what is it that you say? Now they know the answer, but they're just trying to catch Jesus out. They want him to say something against their beloved law of Moses. But it's interesting because Jesus doesn't deny. He says, yep. That does, that does sound like justice. But in order for it to be fair, the one who has never sinned has to throw the first stone. Because only that person who has never sinned is entitled to cast judgment on someone else. And so if you know the story, these religious leaders disappear one at a time until there's no one left. And Jesus says to the woman, where are your accusers? Is no one left to condemn you? She looks around and says, no, there's no one left. And then he says, well, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. His statement of neither do I is massive because the others were never entitled to it in the first place. Jesus is the only one who is sinless. He's the only one who's actually entitled to cast judgment, but what he does instead is he extends grace. And when the Pharisees were given permission to throw the first stone, as long as the one who had never sinned throws the first one, what we see is that their authority, their hierarchy, and their social status is reduced to dust. Sin does that. Sin is like the great leveler. It places us all on the same page. It robs us of the life that God created us for. And it's amazing because when I see the story, I see that Jesus was both merciful and gracious. His mercy withholds from the woman what she actually deserves, which is to be stoned to death. That's what the law says. But then His grace extends to her what she doesn't deserve, which is forgiveness and a fresh start. If you're like me, you just want to fight for the things that we feel like we deserve. But it's the journey to the cross that shows us a Jesus that was willing to fight to pay a price that he didn't owe in order that you and I could have a freedom that we never paid for. And so you're, you're right. Life is so unfair. It is so unfair that we get to walk in a freedom that we didn't deserve. It is so unfair that we get access to a heaven that we should be barred from. Life is so unfair that we would have access and intimacy with a God that is inconceivably greater than us. Life isn't fair, but it is greatly in favor of you and I as we are invited into God's love even after we turn our back on Him. And the greatest display of unfairness we've seen was for God Himself to be tarnished with the cup of sin that He never drank from. Completely unabandoned sacrifice, dead set on His purpose and mission with the grand prize in mind being you and I. Now last week, Darcy started our series with a brilliant message about how Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Judas Iscariot, that rascal. He sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And in the most amazing displays of grace, as Judas and the soldiers turn up to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sees them coming. He knows why they come. And he says, do what you've come to do, friend. He refers to Judas as his friend, even though right there in that moment, he's actively turning his back on Jesus. Well, this morning, we continue the journey to the cross. And the journey is significant because it reveals to us multiple expressions of God's character, His love for us, and His willingness to do whatever it took to pave a clear path between us and God, to reconcile a broken people, that's you and I, and a holy God. And so after being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is subjected to four different trials where you have the Jewish leaders dead set on crucifying Jesus. They don't even want to listen to facts. They just want Jesus crucified. And then you have some governors and leaders, governmental leaders, that want to uphold justice 
And at the same time, by their own admission, they can't actually find a really good reason to punish him. And so accusations are thrown at Jesus left, right, and center. Knowing that crucifixion was the punishment called for, I don't know about you, I would have done everything I could to get out of that. Like I would have avoided that fate at all costs. I would have tried to defend myself like I did in the principal's office that day. But here he is at trial number one. And we're going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 26 from verse 57. Should be up on the screen and you can follow along in your notes in the Elam app if you're ready to go for that. But it says this, Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. The Sanhedrin, which is another name for those religious leaders at that time, were basically just trying to find anyone who was willing to lie and give false testimony against Jesus. They're like, we don't even care if it's true. We just need someone that can accuse Jesus of something outrageous and then we'll just deem him guilty. And so finally they find two guys that are willing to do it. These two guys step forward and they say, that man, talking about Jesus, said that he could destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. It's interesting that what Jesus claims to do will often be seen as crazy by others. They're trying to accuse him of something false and they just bring up something true. And the high priest demands that Jesus defend the accusations. He's like, what you got to say about that one, Jesus? But Jesus remained silent. That's self-control. I would have said, it wasn't me, it was Nyla. I didn't do it. You know? <laughs> they demanded again. They said, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah. This time he responds. He says, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus comes out all guns blazing. At first, he doesn't respond. And then he's like, okay, fine, you're right, I am. And not only that, but I'm going to be seated at a place of honor next to God. He's essentially claiming equality with God here. And the religious leaders lose the plot. The high priest like tears his garment. Can you imagine us doing that these days? He just tears his robe in anguish and he yells out, blasphemy. And everyone else is yelling out, guilty, guilty, he deserves to die. I'm utterly moved and wrecked by the fact that Jesus just owns this. He knows he's an innocent man. He didn't defend himself. He didn't try to talk his way out of it. He didn't even try to escape. Out of his insurmountable love for us and the revelation that would lead him to the cross, he submits himself to the fact that he would be charged as a guilty man, although he never did anything wrong. He would submit himself to immeasurable injustice, condemned and persecuted while deserving freedom and justice. Ernest Gordon, you don't know who he is, neither, um, but he tells a story um, in a book called Miracle on the River Kwai. We always quote the name, you know, but like, you don't know, who cares? Great story. Real book, Miracle on the River Kwai, a real story about Scottish soldiers forced by their Japanese captors into labor on a jungle railroad. The officer in charge becomes absolutely enraged to find that one of the shovels has gone missing. And he demands among the, the soldiers that the missing shovel be produced. Find it right now, he demands. No one budges. Everyone in the squadron just stands still. So the officer goes and finds his gun, brings his gun out and threatens to shoot every single one of them on the spot. And it's clear that he means what he says. After a few agonizing moments of silence, one man steps forward. Soldier puts his gun away, picks up the shovel and beats the man to death. After this takes place, the survivors move on down the track to the next tool checkpoint where they find no shovel missing. There had been a miscount back at the first tool checkpoint. 
and words spread like wildfire throughout the camp that an innocent man was willing to step forward and take the punishment so that his friends could live. The man knew that he didn't lose the shovel, but if he didn't step forward, they would have all suffered a terrible fate. And this incident had a profound effect. The men working on that railroad began to treat each other like brothers. And Jesus, he bore the image of the guilty as a prophetic declaration of what was to take place on the cross, where he would be condemned as an innocent man so that the guilty could walk free. Which makes sense of Romans 8.1, which we may have heard that says, So now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is God's grace at work to make a way where we ourselves had found ourselves at a dead end. The story continues. Next chapter, Matthew 27. So he's just had that trial among the religious leaders. It says this, Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus replied, You have said it. But when the leading priests and elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges that are being brought against you, Pilate demanded? But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. It's interesting that Jesus often remained silent, but sometimes spoke. He shows us that stupid questions and accusations don't always deserve an answer. He wasn't interested in defending the accusations because he had no interest in backing out of his calling. When the Jews bring Jesus before Pilate, they're attempting to get him condemned on political grounds, which is so interesting because that's the very thing that Jesus has been trying to avoid his entire earthly ministry. People expected the Messiah to come as a strong military leader. And when we get so focused on God doing things the way we expect him to, we miss the ways he's actually doing it. That's not how Jesus came. He's been avoiding this political leader image, his entire earthly ministry, and yet that's the basis for the charges that are being brought against him in this trial. In fact, Pilate, the Roman governor, Bible says, could see that this was a ridiculous accusation. He could see the Jewish leaders were only accusing Jesus out of their own envy. Isn't that true, though? So often people's accusations of Jesus are far more about themselves than they are about Jesus. Pilate is convinced of Jesus' innocence. Three times, in fact, he publicly declares that he could find no reason for condemning him. Pilate wants to avoid sentencing him, but he also wants to avoid releasing him since these religious leaders are so convinced that he's guilty. So he's trying to figure out how to do this. Because of this, he makes multiple attempts to release Jesus while also satisfying the Jews. It's a great balancing act that, that he has as the governor. So the first thing he does to try and sort of get out of this is he sends Jesus to Herod, hoping that the responsibility to make the decision would be passed on to him. This is the, the third trial. They just mock Jesus and then send him back to Pilate for the fourth. Secondly, he tries to compromise. Like, we won't crucify him, we'll just flog him. We'll just give him some whips and then send him on his way. Is that good? But these religious leaders, they don't want that either. They want to see him crucified. Thirdly, remembering the tradition of releasing a prisoner at Passover, the Passover celebration, Pilate hopes that the crowds would release Jesus as an act of mercy, even though he's not deserving mercy because he's innocent. It was customary at the Passover celebration to release one prisoner. And so Pilate, who knows there's no legitimate accusation against Jesus, is hoping to use this as a way to finally let Jesus go free. And so he pairs, pairs him up with a guy named Barabbas, a notorious murderer and criminal. And the Bible says, sitting on his judgment seat, Pilate appeals to the crowd, which one should be released today? Should it be this terrible murderer named Barabbas or this innocent man they call the Messiah? And they shout, Barabbas, release Barabbas. And Pilate says, then what should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. 
They yell, and he's like, why? What crime has he committed? And they just yell again, crucify him. They didn't care. It was Jesus that they were after. So Pilate's like, okay. He orders a bowl of water. He washes his hands as a symbolic gesture to say, this one's on you guys. My hands are innocent of this man's blood. And in another prophetic act of what we're going to see on the cross, the crowd choose to instead condemn Sorry, to let go Barabbas, this notorious murderer. And in doing so, they condemn Jesus, the innocent man, to death. The innocent Jesus taking the place of the guilty prisoner. Jesus was sentenced so that the guilty one could walk free. And the most significant part about all of this, if you're listening in, is that Barabbas is you and Barabbas is me. For Barabbas, the murderer, Jesus went to that cross and he was punished as a murderer. For the thief, he's punished as a thief. For the abuser, he's punished as an abuser. For the jealous, the jealous, for the jealous, the hater, the idolater, the dishonest, the cheat, the unfaithful. For all of those people, Jesus was punished on the cross as though it were him, although it most certainly was not. And so this journey to the cross involves the Son of God Himself taking upon him the sins of the world, condemned as the guilty as a substitute for those that should have been there. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If I could try and just say it slightly different and slightly simpler, it would say something like this. Because of your sin, you should die. But because of what Jesus did, you get to live forever. Every moment of our freedom was purchased by every moment of His suffering. And so if you and I never understand the magnitude of our sin, if we downplay it, we push it aside, we turn a blind eye to it, we don't treat it as serious, we will never appreciate the magnitude of His sacrifice. If we don't think He needed to do much in order to forgive us, we won't value what He did on the cross. But we are very much in need of forgiving, and He did everything that needed to be done. During the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England, again, who knows what that means, but he was the Lord Protector of England, he sentenced a soldier to be shot for his crimes. And uh, the execution was to take place at the ringing of the curfew bell that evening. But that evening, the bell did not ring. The soldier's fiance had climbed up into the belfry and hung on to the great clapper in order that the bell wouldn't ring. And when she's summoned before Cromwell to give an account for her actions, she's weeping, she's crying. She so shows him her bleeding and bloody hands. Cromwell's heart is touched. And he says, your lover will not die tonight because of your sacrifice. The curfew bell shall not ring. It's kind of like this trial shows us the unwavering commitment of God to reconcile his people. It shows his willingness to step in as a substitute to take our place. You know what I really love about Anzac Day? Because it's very much connected to war. There's nothing to love about that. But I love that despite how gruesome and atrocious the events were of those wars and the things that took place, I love that that day is a day marked by honor. We honor what was done to purchase our freedom. And if you're anything like me, on that day, you find yourself reflecting. And if you're like me, you feel motivated to live life to the full with the freedom that was purchased for us. This is an appropriate response to Jesus' journey to the cross. If I'm to be honest, I almost cried like every five minutes trying to prepare this message because I just, 
I couldn't fathom how the God of heaven would travel this journey for me. And He would travel this journey for you. This is not just a story in a book. It's not just something our parents taught us about and it seems like a good person thing to do. Jesus literally traveled this journey for us. But it's vitally important that you and I, we break free from any drawing that has us feel like we should feel guilty because of this. Yes, it was my sin and it was your sin that led him through this journey to the cross. But in doing so, he conquered the grave and sin and his victory is our victory. I don't wanna ruin the end of the movie for you, but three days after being crucified, He's raised to new life. Not even death could hold Him down. And His heart for us is that we would live a life today that is not weighed down by what He went through, but it is motivated to live life to the full. He was wounded so we could be healed. He was condemned so we could be forgiven. He was crucified so that we could live. Jesus Himself was deemed guilty so that you and I could walk away innocent. John 15, 13, there is no greater love than to lay one's life down for one's friends. Can I tell you what my response is to this? And I invite you to consider making it your response too. I'm gonna worship Him all the days of my life. And I'm gonna try my best to love others sacrificially like He has first done for me. Life is so unfair, but I'm so glad that it is. Because if life was fair and we got what we actually deserved, We would have no access to God, no access to healing, no promise of an eternity in heaven with Him. And so I'm gonna worship Him. It means cultivating a heart of thanksgiving and praise with my mouth out loud on the good days and the bad days. I'm gonna actively search out moments within my victories to actually have a look, to be intentional, to find ways where I know that God has made a way. The moment I think that all my achievements are because of my own greatness, I've allowed pride to sneak in and I've pushed God out of the picture. But God has played a part in every single victory and achievement I've ever had in my whole life, even before I knew Him. And it means getting a fresh perspective on that first little 20 minute slot at the start of our church services. If you wanna just come and sing songs, just put on Spotify in your car and away you go. But if you actually wanna come into an atmosphere of faith, where you wanna lift your worship to a God that left the splendour of heaven to come and take our place on the cross, then come expectant to do that, to lift your praise, to lift your worship, to fall on your knees and to exalt the name of Jesus. This is single-handedly the most appropriate response to Jesus' journey to the cross. He offered unabandoned sacrifice and so we respond with unabandoned worship. And I hope you would join me in choosing to love others sacrificially. I need to make this clear. We're almost at an end, but... While Jesus was wholly committed to going to the cross to purchase our forgiveness and our freedom in His humanity, He absolutely did not want to. Often I hear the story and I like, oh, like, you know, that was, that was His calling. Like, cool, but He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and He says, God, if there's a way for this cup of suffering to be passed, like, please, like, I don't want to. Who wants to do that? But then He says, but if it's necessary, if that's what's required to bring freedom and breakthrough and salvation to your people, I will see it through. He was willing to lay aside his own desires, his own comforts, his own preferences so that others may have freedom, liberty, breakthrough and healing. That's the life I wanna live. I hope all of us here are encouraged to live a life in response to the journey to the cross that puts the needs and breakthroughs of others before ourselves. It means including people in our world we wouldn't usually connect with. It means going out of our way for others when it's inconvenient. 
It means being generous on every occasion so that others may be blessed by what we give. The greatest way to love others is to do what Jesus did, to lay down our life for them. You might say, that, that's cool, but what about me? If I'm constantly laying down my life for others, then who will lay their life down for me? That is literally the gospel message. That is the journey to the cross in a nutshell. That Jesus who knew no sin would become our sin on the cross, be condemned as a guilty man, although he was a perfect and righteous God. He did that because there was a price to be paid for the forgiveness of sin. And he was willing to pay that price so that you and I didn't have to. John 3, 16 and 17. For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. Let's close our eyes. I'm going to cut straight to the chase. There is no message more valuable for you to ever hear in your whole life, even if you've heard it before, than the one that says there is forgiveness and freedom and healing and heaven available to you exactly as you are right now. Remember that Jesus was deemed guilty so that the guilty could walk free. Therefore, we don't have to get ourselves all innocent and cleaned up. He's already paid the price. As you are, He invites you into His love. Even if you're like Judas or the others that have felt that at times you've turned your back on Him. I'm believing that today is the day that people are going to pray a prayer that's going to change their life. It's going to reset them. It's going to get them back on course. It's going to bring realignment as Darcy shared earlier. And for others, this will be the very first time you make this decision and you pray this prayer. Bible says that because we've all sinned, it separates us all from God. Remember, it's the great leveler. It puts us all on the same page. And we can't possibly work our way back to God in our own strength. We're not good enough. We're not perfect. It's impossible. And so God came and reached out to us. He made a way where there was otherwise no way. And the way that you receive this salvation, this forgiveness, this breakthrough, is you simply turn your heart to Him and offer Him your whole life. And can I assure you, He is a trustworthy God that will care for your heart and your soul. You've got nothing to be afraid of. So I'm gonna pray a simple prayer. And if you wanna get your life right with God today, you want freedom for your journey, you want forgiveness from your sin, you want Him to lead you in this glorious life that He created you for, I invite you to pray this prayer. I'll pray it out loud. You make it your own in your heart. Say, dear God, I acknowledge that I've sinned that it was my sin that put you on that cross. But I know, God, you did that so that I could have victory, I could have freedom, I could be reconciled back to God. And in this moment, God, I say, thank you, thank you, thank you. My response this morning, God, is to turn from my old life towards a new life with you. I ask for your forgiveness, and I thank you that you do forgive me. I ask you to make me brand new today. I want you to come into my life as my Lord and as my Savior. I want to know you as the God who made me. Today is the day that I'm a child of God. 